All right, Matthew chapter 12. Take your Bible. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. And let's re-enter the fray. Literally entering the fray with Jesus here as he is in the midst of incredible turmoil and conflict revolving around his ministry. Both Matthew chapter 11 and 12 really are dark chapters as Matthew places a spotlight on the enemies of the ministry of Jesus. And it is, it is culminating. It's growing. And you're going to see it grow in these next couple of paragraphs as we watch the intensity of the conflict between Jesus and the unbelieving religious leaders of the Jews really is the epitome of those who are blinded by unbelief and pride. And so these are dark chapters in another sense. These chapters are presented with the exact same theme that all of Matthew is presented to us with. That is that Jesus is proven to be the Messiah, even the conflict that revolves around him and the answers to the conflict and the work from the conflict affirms his messianic place and his exclusivity as the promised one, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which we're going to see in our text uh, this morning. Earlier this week, Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, one of the leaders of the conservative movement within the church today, um, a leader in my life, wrote an article that I was very much drawn to because of our relationship to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. He wrote an article this week entitled, Why Moralism is Not the Gospel and Why So Many Christians Think It Is. Why Moralism is Not the Gospel and Why So Many Christians Think It Is. The basis for Dr. Muller's argument flows from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, where Paul reminds the Galatian believers who were under the false teaching that they could aid Christ with their own works, that they could somehow come alongside of the Spirit's work and somehow improve upon what God was doing in their lives, not partnering with and submitting under what God was doing in their lives, but walking right alongside and earning some growth in Christ. And Paul is baffled that they are being led, led astray by another gospel. And in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, nobody, nobody is justified by the law. There is no one who is in heaven because they became a better person. There's no one who is in the presence of the king in the kingdom because they went to church and were raised right and were brought up in a Christian home, and cleaned up their lives after college. There is no one in heaven who's there because they've been sober for 15 years. Or they've been clean for nine months. Moralism is not the gospel. There is no one who receives righteousness because of keeping a law. In particular, Paul is addressing God's law given to Moses in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. No person was, is, or ever will be saved from God's wrath through the keeping of a law that merits them with righteousness. You see, that's not the gospel. But that's the moralism of our country. That's the moralism of our culture. And this permeates the church. Dr. Muller says this, the seduction of moralism is the essence of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we actually can gain 
all the approval we need by our behavior. Of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely without scandal. That is considered sufficient. Did you catch what he said there? Of course, in order to participate in this seduction, that is earning our own righteousness, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. We have to have a self-defined law that we can keep, and it has to have a bucket load of exceptions so that we can make it through. If we're going to engage in moralism, which is not the gospel, these things have to be true for us. He goes on to say, moralists can be categorized as both liberal and conservative. In each case, a specific set of moral concerns frames the moral expectation. As a generalization, it is often true that liberals focus on a set of moral expectations related to social ethics, while conservatives tend to focus on personal ethics. The essence of moralism is apparent in both the belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. God is not impressed by you cleaning up your life, by being a better person, by wanting to be a better person. This is not the gospel. The theological temptation, Dr. Muller goes on to say, of moralism is one, many Christians and churches find it difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to the fallen world. Now, this is true in your culture. And you say, how do we know that? Because if you went to any unsaved neighbor around you and said, what defines a Christian? They would tell you what Christians don't do. And what they do, they, they would list it in moral codes that they think are applicable. Right? Christians don't do certain things. They don't drink and they don't smoke and they don't chew. They don't run with those who do. Right? Something like that. It's not been on a plaque in my house any time in the recent past. Christians go to church. Christians... Love people. Those are all true statements, but those are not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that no one receives righteousness by their own effort. Only ones who receive justification are those who come to the end of themselves and place their confidence in Jesus. Period. Now, there's no no greater illustration of moralists. Nobody in the world is a moralist like the Pharisees were. These were moralists of the all-star caliber. Nobody was as immersed in moralistic gospel than the Pharisees, and their view of Jesus is a direct result of their moralism. And these encounters with Jesus revolving around the Sabbath day and the keeping of their interpretation of the law, which was built with innumerable loopholes and exceptions for them. Their concern about Jesus being a good person by their measurement has everything to do with their understanding of how God related to them because of their quote unquote righteousness. That's why the rich young ruler could say, according to the law, I'm blameless. Who in the world could say that? 
a Jew who had been brought up under the Pharisees' teaching. There is no greater illustration. And with the Pharisees on display, Matthew is using the display of the Pharisees to heighten our awareness of who Jesus truly is. Jesus is the Lord of the law. He fulfilled it and he interpreted it perfectly for 33 years while he lived upon this earth. And it proves that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, in the first round of conflict with Jesus about the Sabbath. It was rather indirect, right? They started to gripe at Jesus about his disciples, and they're picking grain on the Sabbath day. How could they do this? How could they be involved in this if they're truly followers of the Messiah, as Jesus is claiming to be? This week, things move from indirect to extremely direct. And the Pharisees will encounter Jesus, and they will confront Jesus specifically in this text. Let's read it together to set our context, get acclimated to our territory here, and then we'll dive in this morning and examine Jesus as the Lord of the law. Round two from Matthew chapter 12, beginning of verse number nine. Let's read together. You read silently as I read out loud. Matthew chapter 12, verse nine. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they thought, so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you is a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the others. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord for our consideration and our study this morning. Not unlike last week, I just want to divide this narrative account up into three sections for you, and I hope these are helpful. We're going to see the context of the conflict. We'll see the content of the conflict, and then we'll conclude with the conclusion to the conflict. So the context of the conflict, the content of the conflict, and then the conclusion to the conflict. Hopefully that will help clarify and put this text in kind of a package that we can understand, and we'll focus on applications at the conclusion context context is found in verses 9 and 10 he went out from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand that's your context that's all we have Uh, mark chapter 3 and luke chapter 6 both tell us that jesus did not go from the grain field and literally walk over to a synagogue Uh, this was on another sabbath day matthew is simply moving the story along connecting the two accounts 
So he went on from there. And on another Sabbath, Mark 3, 1, Luke 6, 6, tell us, Jesus entered their synagogue. It's important to see the context of their synagogue. Every word is inspired for us and is profitable, including the word there in this text. Jesus entered into the very lair of the Pharisees. He went right into their house. He went where they lived, where they were top dog. He went to their synagogue, which is a sad testimony at this point in Jerusalem's history and in the nation of Israel's history that the synagogues were the Pharisees. They were no longer God's place. They were no longer where the Jews came to meet with God to offer sacrifices a sign of their faith that God would provide a perfect sacrifice. Now the synagogue is identified by Matthew as their synagogue, the Pharisees place. And in that synagogue, a man was there with a withered hand. We don't know anything about what the withered hand is. There's no secret in the Greek language of what it means to be withered. Um, it means withered. That's why they translated it withered. Uh, it means withered hand. I don't know what a dead hand looks like, but somehow this man was maimed. The other parallel accounts in Luke 6 and Mark 3 don't give us any more information other than that this man was known to be lame by both Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, Mark and Luke communicate to us, were clearly aware of the situation. They knew Jesus was coming to their synagogue and they knew that the man with the withered hand was there. And they were excited about the opportunity that provided. Because it was the Sabbath. And so they were going to watch. They were going to watch and see what would take place. So the context is pretty simple. It's the Sabbath day, another Sabbath from the day in the wheat field. And Jesus has entered their synagogues. And the players for this story are Jesus, the Pharisees, and the man with the bad hand. And all the people watching. Okay? That's the context. Now, the content picks up in the second part of verse number 10. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they may accuse him. He said to them, which one of you is a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The content of this conflict is pretty simple at face value, and yet it's complex at the spiritual level. At, at, at the face value, they're simply asking him a question to try to trap him. But for the Jewish reader, for those who would live under the understanding of the law, they were placing Jesus in a corner trying to trap him. This was obviously nothing new for the Pharisees. They hoped to undermine Jesus. So they ask him a question. Here's the man with the withered hand. We're just over here nonchalantly watching. But we've got a question for you, Jesus, because we got a we got we got an inclination that you're about to heal him. And you know that that would be considered work. Because if you're a healer and you heal, that's work. If you're a doctor and you mend, that's work. And this is the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is to be free from work. And so we've got chapters and chapters in the Talmud about how to not work on the Sabbath. You remember this? You don't take a bath because if you spill water from the bathtub and it goes on the floor and it washes the floor, you've broken the law. Okay? That's not what the Old Testament said. They clearly had missed the point. But they asked the question, 
All the Pharisees care about is not is it loving, not is it good, best, good, better, or best, but just simply is it lawful according to our standard that you heal this man? That's the question. And the motive is clearly seen in verse number 10. The last phrase, so that, there's your so that phrase. You want to underline those in your Bible study. That's a purpose statement, so that they might accuse him. They're only talking to Jesus, and they're only listening to Jesus so that they can accuse Jesus. They have no intention of hearing Jesus. They certainly do not believe Jesus. They just want to accuse Jesus. And the Pharisees here reveal that they could not grasp 1 Corinthians 2.14, they could not understand what Jesus had said in the grain field on the previous Sabbath. What did Jesus said? Go back to verse number 5. Verse number 5 in chapter 12, if you just look up above. Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? That's the working priest. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy or compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. You would not have responded to my disciples if you understood what I desire in the law. They missed that point. They always miss that point because they're legalists. They're earning their own salvation. And that cannot include a transformed heart. Because they are incapable of accomplishing that task. Flip back to Hosea chapter 6. Let's just take a quick peek and see the second half of that verse. Which draws out even more what Hosea is prophesying on behalf of God himself. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea is right before Joel. Or yes, right before Joel. Right after Daniel. That probably doesn't help a bunch. Um, You can just listen if you're finding it hard to find. (laughs) Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Here's the word of God to the nation of Israel. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Okay? Jesus quotes this, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Jesus uses a word that could be translated mercy. Even the Old Testament Hebrew word could be translated mercy, but the ESV has done a a fine job of translating this steadfast love. This is a covenant word. Jesus desires, and God desired in the Old Testament from Israel, a covenant love, a compassion, a heart change toward him which is paralleled in the second half of the verse. He doesn't want another burnt animal. He wants the knowledge of God. He wants them to be captured by him, in love with him. He wants heart change. The law was to draw them to grace. The Pharisees had entirely missed it. Therefore, they ask on the Sabbath in the synagogue, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Covenant love was what God desired and the Pharisees could see nothing but their law and their law alone. So that's the content of the conflict. But Jesus comes back in verse number 11 and 12 and he finishes what they've begun. Uh, Before Christ, when I was very much into shouting 
the glory of Adam. I would fight occasionally. Um, I tried to bully people instead of fighting so that the fight didn't actually happen. But I can remember on several occasions using a term, if you start it, don't worry, I'll finish it for you. Um, The Pharisees started this one. Jesus finishes it, takes care of the problem, beginning in verse number 11. I didn't always finish it, by the way. It's just something I said. Um, Okay, verse number 11. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Okay, Jesus very simply throws in their face a picture. The picture is one of an animal, and they all get the picture. They've got animals, and they know that on the Sabbath, if the animal falls into a ditch, if the ox falls in a ditch, if the sheep falls into a pit, that they are allowed, and they would not think it unlawful to grab that sheep and get it out of the pit, even though it was the Sabbath day. He points at the hypocrisy of their question. In front of all the people, there's a man with a withered hand. Jesus is the healer. He's capable of healing this hand. And the Jews want to make the claim that it's unlawful for him to do so. And he says, how many of you have got a sheep? To which, no doubt, the temperature begins to rise in the room. Because he says, if that sheep fell in a pit, you'd get it out today. And no one would accuse you, nor would you accuse you. He follows that up with a lesser to greater argument in verse number 12 of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So here I am in front of this individual and you're asking me, is it lawful to heal him, to do something good for him, to restore him? You value sheep more than you value this man is the embarrassing conclusion to the argument. And Jesus says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The other gospel accounts record him as asking them again, is it lawful? So he declares it and then he asks them and they remain silent. At this point, smoke is coming from the ears. They're red in the face and they've been completely humiliated again by Jesus in their synagogue. So the content is pretty clear. They ask him and he says to them in verse number 12, We find Jesus slamming the door shut on their argument. He concludes then this conflict with verse number 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Now, this is a true miracle, unlike what is often called miracle ministry today. This man had a withered hand. All Jesus asked of him was by faith to extend his hand and his hand was completely restored. In fact, Matthew goes so far as to say healthy like the other one. So as healthy as his left hand was, now his right hand was also healthy and the argument has come to a conclusion. So the content is pretty simple. The conclusion is telling. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew is putting him on display as the interpreter and keeper of perfect keeper of the righteous standard of God and the law. The Pharisees are the enemy of Jesus because they are legalists. They are those who are demanding others to keep their law to earn righteousness because they are earning their way toward God. Which brings us to the conclusion. We have the context in verses 9 and 10. Then we have the content in verses 10 through 12. And now we find the conclusion beginning in verse number 14. The Pharisees have their conclusion, and it's a sad one. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him 
how to destroy him. The proof of what Jesus is pointing out in the Pharisees is obvious by their response. Maybe you've been in a conflict before and someone has told you that you're angry. And you scream back at them, I am not angry. And they just look at you like, yeah, but see, you, well, that's, you, just, you just proved what I said was true. So if the people were wondering, when they saw the Pharisees rush out in a rage after this dilemma that had been presented to them, and if the people heard the Pharisees saying, he must be destroyed, he must be destroyed, they sealed their fate before the Messiah. They sealed in their response the proof that they were in fact enemies of God's grace, blinded by their pride. In verse number 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out as opposed to everybody else. Okay, let's not miss the fact in Matthew's understatement that somebody just got healed. I I mean, this man's hand was lame and all of a sudden it isn't. And the people in the synagogue did not want to just rush out of there. They were probably celebrating, rejoicing. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We were here. We were here to see this happen. I've heard about this in other synagogues. I've heard about this in other towns. But I never thought I'd see Jim's hand healed right in front of my eyes. I've known Jim his whole life. That silly hand's been withered his whole life. And all the joy and excitement. But the Pharisees get out of there. They're out of their synagogue and they're conspiring against Jesus. This is no theory. This is true. They are forming a conspiracy to remove from the face of the planet the individual that was robbing them of their glory. And they would they would succeed. It says at the end of verse 14, they were conspiring how to destroy him. They would succeed in destroying Jesus, but they would not succeed until Jesus gave himself up to be slaughtered according to the plan of the Father. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Now, there's the Pharisees' conclusion to the story, and then there's Jesus' conclusion, and Jesus' conclusion picks up in verse 15. And this is where I want to focus our attention this morning because I believe that this is the bright and shining light in the middle of these dark chapters of conflict with Jesus. Now, Jesus, aware of this, that is aware of the the plan and the rage of the Pharisees, withdrew from there. He pulled out of the synagogue. And in Matthew's understated way, many followed him. Do you think do you think many followed him? They were crowding around him with every sick person they could find. And he healed all of them. Jesus was relentless in his ministry, as we've seen before. But verse 16 gives us a curveball and ordered them not to make him known. Jesus withdrew, he healed, and then he hid himself through the silence of the healed ones. Now, why does Jesus say, don't tell anybody that I did this? And Jesus does this repeatedly through his ministry, and it never works. Uh, No one obeys him in this. No account is given of the actual silence of those who were healed. But Jesus says, Do not go tell people what just happened to you. Why would he do that? The same reason that he left the synagogue. Jesus, the Messiah King of heaven, who has come to establish his kingdom, 
Why would he leave a conflict with his enemies who he will put under him, who he will defeat? Why would he leave? Why would he run? Why, when they tried to stone him, did he duck out and leave? Why did he tell people who had been healed, don't go tell people that the Messiah did this? Because Jesus was not here concerned for his own version of the kingdom. He was here exclusively to carry out the will of the Father. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is the mystery of the incarnation that God became man and submitted under the Father. The Son is submitting to the Father. He's only here to accomplish the Father's plan. Therefore, he does not want an insurrection. He does not want a rash movement towards an earthly kingdom. In fact, Matthew explains it. This was to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What was to fulfill it? The ordering of the people not to make him known. This was to fulfill what Isaiah had said in chapter 42. This is a paraphrase from Matthew of Isaiah 42. And here's what we find beginning in verse number 18. Behold, my servant, this is God speaking, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now what, what is Isaiah saying, and what is Matthew clearly identifying in Jesus? To this point in our study of Matthew, Matthew's sole identification of Jesus is the promised king, the Messiah king. Here he draws attention back to Isaiah 42 and Isaiah specifically is identifying the Messiah as the servant. As the suffering servant of the father. And here Matthew identifies Jesus not just as the promised Messiah king, but as the servant king. The one who came not to accomplish his own will, but the will of the father. Notice what we find in these verses about our servant king. Jesus, the servant king, is, in verse number 18, the father's elect. He's the chosen one of the father. He's loved by the father. He's spirit empowered because of the father. He's well pleasing to the father. And his mission is to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to verbally proclaim it. Isaiah goes on to say that the sufferer, the suffering servant, the servant king, Jesus, will not be marked out by his fighting, quarreling, and arguing. He will not be marked by crying aloud. He will not herald in the streets. Jesus will not stand in the synagogue, come under accusation, and shout with the enemies of his kingdom. Poetically, Isaiah goes on to describe the suffering servant in verse number 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, what in the world is he talking about? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus will be so marked by gentleness, by meekness in the incarnation. The suffering servant will be identified with his humanity in such a way that if there's a broken twig, he won't snap it. And if there's a wick going out, he won't quench it. He will be marked by gentleness and meekness. He will be marked by what the world says is the opposite of king leadership. Because he'll be the servant king. 
He will be gentle in every way. But verse 20 ends with yet another truth. Not only is he the spokesman for the justice of God to the Gentiles, not only is he gentle and humble, but he will bring justice to victory. There is a day coming when the suffering servant king will establish victory in justice. Justice will be had. For sinners, it will be at the cross when God's wrath is poured out upon the suffering servant king. For the unbelieving, for the Gentile rejectors of God, for the Jewish rejectors of God, justice will come to victory in the culmination of the kingdom being established in the return of Christ. And notice verse 21, the final truth about Jesus, the servant king, is that his name is hope for the Gentiles. Now this is this is where we live, folks. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the law. And he is the hope of the Gentiles. Why? Why is Jesus the hope of the Gentiles? Because the Jews rejected their Messiah. God in his sovereign plan turned his attention from his covenant people, the Jews, focusing his attention on the Gentiles, rescuing to him what was a mystery in the Old Testament, the church. From every tribe and tongue and nation. To the glory of his name. That's you. And that's me. If you're here this morning and you're not a part of the remnant of the Jewish people that are being saved. Then you are a Gentile whose hope is in the righteous law keeping servant king. And there is no other hope. Legalism ends in hatred for a substitute righteousness. It ends in hatred toward Jesus and a desire to destroy Jesus of the Bible. Legalism undermines his identity. It explains away his ministry. It diminishes his power. And as we're going to see in the future, in the future paragraphs, even within chapter 12, it will go to any length to discredit Jesus. You were born one of these. You were born wanting to earn your own salvation. That's why when we sing how deep the father's love for us, it was my sin that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. Why do we identify with the scoffers at the cross? Because apart from grace, apart from the hope of the Gentiles, we would have been with the Pharisees conspiring how we could destroy Jesus. Let me ask you two questions to bring this down upon us. And we'll leave this Sabbath discussion and these Sabbath conflicts. Number one this morning, is Jesus the hope of the Gentiles to you? Is he the hope of your life? Do you look to Jesus and to Jesus alone for righteousness that you cannot earn? Not to be a help and to finish out your righteousness. Not to come alongside and kind of help me out when I can't do what I need to do. Not when I'm at the end of myself and I just guess I'm going to have to lean on Jesus for this one. But Jesus is the hope of the Gentiles. Is that true for you? The exclusive place of your righteousness. That's the gospel. The gospel is not clean up your life. The gospel is trust the one who has a perfectly clean life. And you'll be forgiven. Is that true of you? And for many, it is. And I know it is. And I'm grateful that it is. So for us, there's a second question this morning. 
Is the hope of your salvation enough for you? Is Jesus good enough for you? The reason I'm drawn back to that is because of Galatians 3.1, where the Galatian believers had come to faith in Christ by the Spirit's power, but had turned away and were trying to perfect themselves apart from the Spirit in their own flesh. So yes, Jesus is the hope of my salvation. He's the hope of righteousness for me. But is He good enough in that role for your day-to-day life? Is He good enough to earn your adoption as a son and a daughter to God? Yes. Is He good enough to pay your ransom and to buy you out of your slavery? Yes. Then, is He good enough to capture your affections? I mean, this is where it comes to, folks. When we say Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and I side with Jesus. I trust Jesus. He kept the Sabbath for me. He's the perfect fulfillment of the law for me on my account. That's been credited to me because he died my death at the cross. And he lives and provides eternal life. Then is he good enough to capture your affections? Is that enough? Is the Lord of the Sabbath the whole of your life? Do you and I live for Christ? Is He good enough to hold your allegiance? Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or like Paul, can you be confident to say it's the power of God unto salvation? I have no shame. Is Jesus... As Lord of the law, good enough for your affections to be captured? Is he beautiful enough and good enough to hold your allegiance? Is he good enough to direct your life? You see, legalism is obedience to earn grace. Not grace, but to earn merit. To earn love from God. Legalism says, I'm obedient to the Bible. I keep the Bible. I'm a a law keeper so that God will love me, so that God will notice me, so that God will bless me. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have seen the beauty of Christ, those who have seen the matchless sacrifice of Christ, there is no longer legalism. We are no longer obeying to earn his affection. We are obeying because we have experienced his affection. The coin is turned over. And now because of grace, I am obedient. I'm motivated by grace. My eye is set on grace. I'm energized by grace. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You see, brothers and sisters, the constant fear of the legalist is if Jesus is just enough, then I just sin at free will. I just go for it. But in reality, when Jesus is seen as the Lord of the Sabbath, who has provided righteousness for us as sinful people. When Jesus's cross is seen as the substitution that it is. Then the grace that has been experienced provokes us towards obedience. We are provoked toward affection for our Jesus. We do not ask Jesus, is it lawful? We affirm all that you have done is lawful. And all that I have done is unlawful. I need you. So this morning. 
You say, sure, sign me up. I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Are you committed to Jesus? Yes, I'm committed to Jesus. Does Jesus direct your life? And if so, how would we know that? If so, how would you know that? What about you distinguishes you as one who is with Jesus? How do others see those affections? How do others see your love for Jesus? Because Jesus has simply said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Those who love Christ, who have been first loved by God, are those who live in obedience to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the law. He fulfilled it. He interprets it perfectly. It proves that he's the Messiah. It ends all legalism. To know Christ is to stop working for Christ to know you. To know grace is to obey motivated by grace, not to earn grace. This is the gospel. Moralism is not the gospel. In fact, it deceives and leads people away from the gospel. Grace is the gospel at the cross in the person of the Lord of the law, the servant king who came not to fulfill his own plan, but to fulfill the plan of the father to rescue sinners for the greatness of his name to be put on display. This is the truth from the word of God, Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this insufficient explanation of it. There is so much here. And yet in these conflicts, we are struck with the perfections of Jesus, your son and our savior. We're struck with the blindness of the arrogant legalists, the Pharisees. And we resonate. We see ourselves. We know that our our natural bent, our born in bent, our default is legalism. And yet in your grace, you have opened our eyes, you have opened our ears, you have opened our hearts, you have given us a view of Christ in all of his beauty at the cross, suffering for your glory, bearing our sin, dying our death because he had lived the life that we desperately needed to live. You've opened our ears to hear the simple message that those who believe will be forgiven. Those who are at the end of themselves, who turn from their sin and believe the finished work of Jesus, who follow him, will be forgiven. You've given us hearts of flesh, not stone, that are captured by Christ. And so we're thankful for this portion of your word that identifies the lawlessness of legalism. And the perfections of Christ, which which alone are our merit before you. He is our high priest and he is at your right hand because he has finished his work. He has finished what he began at the cross. He's been raised to new life and he will return and culminate all of this in his victory in justice. Teach us to look only to Christ. 
Teach those this morning, Father, according to your grace, who do not know you, to turn to Christ. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. Grant them a view of Christ that will capture them and draw them to him. Teach us as your people to value Christ because of his worth, to value him because of who he truly is in such a way that our affections are caught up in him. Our allegiance is entirely to him and our lives are directed by him. May that be evident. May our progress in that be evident to all. May this be for your honor and glory. May Grace Church be a church that does not trust its own obedience to earn your favor, but because it has experienced your favor, responds in affectionate obedience to you. So that seeing our good works, others might glorify our Father who's in heaven. This is our prayer. This is our desire. May you see fit to do so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.